0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
0: We're here with a guest today that I've been looking forward to having on for a long time. Dr. Michael B. he is a biochemist, an intelligent design advocate, and the author of Darwin's Black Box and The Edge of Evolution. He teaches biochemistry at Lehigh University and also has a new book that just came out called Darwin Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution. Mike, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, it's terrific to be with you.
0: Let me start by just asking you to share your story of becoming a skeptic of Darwinism.
2: Uh, yeah, sure. I You know... Back in the day, I I used to believe Darwin's theory was correct. I'm a a Roman Catholic, and uh, I went to parochial schools, and we were taught kind of a theistic evolutionary uh, idea that you know God made, God created the universe and its laws, and if He wanted to make life by natural processes, well, who were we to to uh, tell Him He couldn't? And that sounded all fine to me. Uh, but after a while, when I was, uh, an associate professor at Lehigh in the early, in the mid 80s, I read a book called Evolution, a Theory and Crisis by a, a guy named Michael Denton, who's a medical doctor and geneticist in Australia at the time. And in it, he pointed out a whole number of problems for Darwin's theory that i had never heard about even though i was at that time a uh a faculty member biochemist and i should have heard about this and uh thinking back i found that um nobody in my science classes uh looked critically at darwin's theory it was all pretty much assumed and so at that point i got ticked off i was you know, i was mad because i thought I was being led to believe something not because of the evidence for it, but just because that's, that's the way we're supposed to think these days. And so in biochemistry, which is the study of the molecular basis of life, you come across a lot of really fantastically complex systems, elegant systems. And Uh, it used to be the case I'd, I'd look at, look at them and turn a page of a textbook and say, holy moly, I wonder how that evolved. And I'd say to myself, well, I guess somebody knows and (laughs) turn the page again. But now that I read Denton's book, I decided to go to the science library and ask that question in earnest. Who has explained how any of these things could have arisen? And it turned out that surprising to me at the time that nobody had. Uh, there was lots of, you know, hand waving and saluting of Darwin, but nobody had explained in detail how these very elegant systems might have arisen. Uh, and so from then on, I pretty much uh, I have been very uh, uh, strongly interested in evolution and intelligent design.
1: So Mike. Just to fill out a little bit about your, your background and your journey on this, tell our listeners a little bit about what has happened to you professionally. Uh, you said you were a faculty member already. I take it at Lehigh at the time. Uh, That's when, right. When you, started, when you started having these questions and reading some of these things. For what As you started interacting with colleagues and started raising some of these questions, publishing the things you have, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what happened in your professional life as a result of becoming this uh, skeptic of Darwinism?
2: Well, in the beginning, it it wasn't too bad. Um, um, I published my first book, Dara's Black Box, in 1996, and intelligent design really wasn't on the radar screen at that point. And some of my colleagues, you know, um, found this I, interesting. They hadn't thought about it before. And they said, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's uh, kind of interesting, um, and I get emails from scientists saying, "You know, I've I've thought much about much along the same lines and you know, all uh, for a while now." And but then, um, as the ideas started to spread uh, in society, the the book was pretty widely discussed and reviewed and such. Then uh, the scientific community started to get kind of nervous, and then. Uh, Later on, there were uh, uh, efforts to introduce some of these ideas into schools and they started to go on a crusade then to stamp out intelligent design and uh, intelligent design at that point started to become anathema so that if you said that you might, you think there might be something to this idea of, of design. Uh, you put your career at risk if you were a scientist. And, uh, over, over the time, past 15 years or so, I've known folks who have been, uh, denied tenure, graduate students who have been kicked out of laboratories, uh, people who have been har- harassed and so on. Uh, nothing like that happened to me because, uh, I had tenure at the time and, and I'm no fool. So uh, I made sure I had my <laughs> had my uh self-secure. But a lot of people paid uh an impressive career price uh for defending intelligent design. And it kinda it kind of simmered down a bit, but that's still the same uh attitude that this uh this idea is anathema. And uh, you've got to be crazy if you're a scientist to to think something like that. So I'm hoping the new book will kind of shake that up a bit.
0: So questions of design versus natural process date back long before the time of Christ. What's new about the date today and maybe even what's new about the arguments you're making in your book?
2: yeah yeah sure. You know, ever since we've got you know written historical records, it turns out that people have been discussing design versus randomness and and so on. What's different about uh, the debate today is that science has pretty much reached the foundation of physical life, that is, cells and molecules and molecular systems. Uh, and so we have knowledge, just empirical knowledge that the folks, uh, back in the time of the Greeks and so on didn't have. As a matter of fact, even in Charles Darwin's day in, you know, 1850s, 60s, and so on, uh, they had a pretty primitive view of life compared to us now. The, uh, cell, which we now know to be the, the basis of life. There's no such, there's no life without a cell. It was thought to be a pretty simple little thing, you know, maybe on a, a microscopic piece of jelly, you know, protoplasm. And some people thought that, well, maybe this this simple jelly could probably just bubble up from the sea bottom. And uh, so life, you know, it wouldn't be hard to originate life And who knows, it might just kind of shape itself this way and that from there. Not only that, but even molecules, molecules that we now know are the foundation of physical matter, you know, uh, they were theoretical entities. Nobody was quite sure if they existed. So the point is that they didn't have much, didn't have a lot of the knowledge that we do now. And what's particularly uh, relevant in the Uh, now is that in the past, just in the past 20 years, science has developed the ability to easily sequence DNA. Probably most people have heard of the Human Genome Project, and that was in the year 2000. But uh, since then, uh, people have developed these techniques, really great guns. It's, It's like Computers that started out, you know, big and clunky that fill up a room and they could, you know, barely add two plus two, but now they're really sleek and fast and powerful. It's the same thing with sequencing DNA that uh, one can sequence the entire genome of a creature uh, pretty, pretty easily these days. And that's critical. Turns out it's critical because mutations which are the basis of evolution. You've got mutations that change things, and then natural selection can select whatever seemingly works. Mutations are changes in molecules, in DNA. And you've got to be able to see what those changes are uh, in order to see what Darwin's theory uh, is capable of at the, at the very foundation of life.
1: So it's, it sounds like what you're suggesting here is that with our with our ability to look at life at the molecular level like we've never had before, um, that that's raising new sets of questions about some of the traditional Darwinian mechanisms for producing the complexity of life that we know of today. Would that that'd be yeah, a, a fair summary?
2: Sure, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, um a comparison i like to make is that you know um speculating about how life arose uh before the past 20 years is kind of like uh people wondering about what the universe was like before the telescope was invented you know this these this uh machinery that kind of uh, augments our senses, gives us the ability to really see what's going on at the molecular foundation of life, just like the telescope uh, let people follow what was going on with the stars and, and so on. And so our understanding of life really starts pretty much now, uh, in the past 20 years or so, uh, and it's, it does not look good for, for Darwin's uh, theory
1: so let me, let me ask a follow-up question on that. Um, I've heard some of your colleagues at Discovery Institute, uh, Steve Meyer, for example, and others, make the argument that uh, uh, among the, the Darwinian community, uh, the, the traditional Darwinian emphasis on mutations and natural selection as the mechanism for produce, producing the complexity of life as we know it today is in crisis. Uh, would you agree with that yeah. assessment?
2: I I certainly would, <laughs> and as a matter of fact, perhaps more important, not only me, but I would I would bet that at least a third, or maybe more, of practicing biologists would agree with that. Uh, that's one thing that gets very much underreported in all this. Whenever evolution is discussed for the unwashed masses and in public. Uh, Darwin's theory is rolled out and touted as the, the answer to all your questions. It explains pretty much everything. But if you look in the professional literature and the journals that, uh, biologists write in and read, there's lots of people who say that Darwin's theory can't really cut the mustard. And uh, we've got to look around for something else. And, and people who are proposing different ideas, uh, to supplement or augment uh, Darwin's theory. Uh, so, yeah, lots of people besides uh, just the folks at Discovery um, think that Darwin's theory is is uh, in big trouble.
0: You say in Darwin uh, Devolves that Darwin's mechanism and or other natural mechanisms can account for species and genus level changes, but not higher levels of classification. Uh-huh. Could Could you clarify that for our audience and then explain what you mean using the reference that I loved in your book where you had eight digits of money to explain how much these natural mechanisms can uh-huh. account for the diversity and complexity of life?
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. Um... Let's use the example of, say, the Darwin's finches, the Galapagos finches that are um, in a lot of biology textbooks and so on. People, are, they're it's, they're touted as showing the power of Darwin's mechanisms. That originally there were only, you know, maybe one finch species. Now there's 12, 14 or so on the Galapagos Islands and some have small beaks, small pointy beaks, beaks some have big blunt beaks and and they vary from each other and they uh and they have uh become reproductively isolated that is they they just mate with their own kind but you know they've been there for 2 million years and they started apparently with a finch and they've ended with a finch and more than that if you uh if you think about the main biological classifications, there there are eight of them. The, the highest one is the domain. That's uh, like bacteria versus um, eukaryotes. And then it goes to kingdom and phylum and class and order, family, genus, and species. So species is the very lowest level of classification. And what's more, those... Um, you know, categories differ from each other by a fairly large amount. So an analogy I used in the book is that suppose you think of those eight categories as uh, the eight as eight digits in a sum of money, totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars, and um, the, including the dimes and cents column. That means that with species being the pennies column and genus being the dimes column, that means that in two million years, uh, Darwin's mechanism, even granting it did what people claim for it, has changed only the last two columns, the sense column, uh in in the uh in the uh in the finches. They're still the same uh they're still the same family. They're still the same order, class, and so on. They just changed uh, the last two digits. So they've gone from something like, oh, $238,654.19 to 234650 whatever dollars and maybe, you know, uh, $0.84. Cents. Uh, heck, if you put that in the bank, you would certainly want more interest than that and uh in 2 million years and as i write in the book uh even the irs uh the uh, they tell <laughs> taxpayers to round off the cents in their tax returns and if that were applied to biology all of this hoopla about the darwin finches would would be disregarded
1: so it so it essentially would amount to nothing more than <clears throat> than a rounding error
2: uh, <laughs> exactly yeah that's so. correct yeah
1: let me, Mike. Yeah, let me go back to the this one one third of the scientists who who you're suggesting would acknowledge that the traditional sort of Darwinian narrative is in crisis. Uh, other than embracing a theistic design alternative, what other options are available to them within a naturalistic framework?
2: Well, um, let me mention two. Uh, one is called natural genetic engineering, and it's, it's kind of championed mostly by a man named James Shapiro, who's a biologist at the University of Chicago. And the idea is that, just like Darwin's natural selection, uh, maybe, uh, nature can engineer cells and organisms. Just like scientists in the lab, Take materials from the cell uh, in order to a number do a number of manipulations on dna there there are things there are uh, little catalysts called enzymes which uh, can cut DNA at specific places they're called restriction enzymes and other ones that can stitch them back together uh where you want them to be and they're called ligases and there are little uh, DNA vehicles that you can put genes into in the lab and put the vehicle into a cell and it will reproduce inside the cell. Uh, they're called uh, plasmids. And the idea is, well, the cell has all these tools that we humans use to uh, uh, genetically engineer uh, DNA out- outside of the cell, a kind of artificial uh, uh, genetic engineering, uh, well, maybe nature, just like uh, artificial versus natural selection, maybe nature can use these itself to rearrange, uh, rearrange uh, DNA. And it's an interesting idea, and it recognizes some of the problems with Darwin's theory, but there's no reason to suppose and no evidence to show that these uh, tools uh, do anything novel or interesting when the cell loses control of them, when they go outside their normally regulated boundaries in the cell. So, I, I, you know, it's an interesting idea. In some ways, it's pointing towards intelligent design, too. uh, But there's no uh, reason and no evidence uh, to support it right now in my humble view and another idea is called neutral evolution in neutral evolution the idea is that a lot of mutations in dna changes in dna don't help the organism but they don't hurt it either they're kind of neutral they just change and you know no big deal no you know no harm no foul and they sometimes they spread through the population of organisms say some bunny rabbit you know has a mutation that doesn't do anything but nonetheless it has just by chance more offspring than its fellow uh, uh its fellow members of its species and they just by chance have more too and so over time this neutral mutation would get fixed in the population And that's interesting, too, and and people who support this point to features of the genome, uh, DNA in in the cell, and say that um, they can be thought of as arising from from neutral evolution. And maybe they did. Uh, That's fine. Uh, But by definition, neutral evolution can't explain the complex molecular machinery, the stuff that actually... Gets work done in the cell because all of the mutations it talks about are neutral. They don't do anything. They don't help. They don't hurt, and that's fine. But it's not much of an explanation. Yeah, so and there's huh. a handful so of other ones too. So if,
1: but, so if they're neutral, how do you make any progress?
2: Exactly. That yeah. Good. It's you know they're they're okay for following how long two species might have been separated because. If they each accumulate neutral mutations over time, then the number of differences between them might give you an idea of how long it's been since they uh, were a single species, and that's interesting again to know. But it does not explain any of the tough questions, like where where the real structures, where the uh, uh, the, gen- the information in the DNA comes from.
0: I've got kind of a two-part question for you. Number one is you're convinced that natural causes, Darwin's mechanism, and others can't account for the complexity and diversity of life down to DNA. Um, but your, your criticism on page 51, you say Darwin's icy grip on modern intellectual life is based on shoddy philosophy, not science. So what is this philosophy that's holding people back from recognizing what you view as the failure of Darwin's theories but then, on the flip side, there seems to be a growing number of theists, evolutionary creationists, or theistic evolutionists who embrace some form of Darwinism. How do you make sense of the two of those?
2: Well, uh, let's see. The the first part, uh, I, the philosophy behind it is is pretty much materialism, uh, and that is that only material processes, matter and energy chance, and and so on, and natural laws uh, explain life. And that's uh, taken as an assumption, not as some sort of demonstrated fact. And that, of course, uh, ties into a lot of other uh, questions, too, philosophical, theological questions about, you know, how God interacts with with the world or uh, whether there is a God. Uh, and it just it's cool too it It seems to be more modern than uh somebody who claims that you know life was designed that uh a creator had to have made life uh so that's pretty much it uh that's the philosophy and then stemming from that are a lot of other things like uh prestige and how you're considered by your fellow folks and and just what looks plausible uh, in your kind of social network, um, so most probably most scientists don't believe in Darwinism because they have been somehow persuaded, but because that's what they were taught, and that's what everybody assumes in their in their uh, departments and so on. As far as you know theistic evolutionists, well, you know, you can't, uh, can't, uh, explain a whole broad category, but still, I think that, uh, a major factor is that they have kind of been influenced by these sociological factors too. That, uh, some of them explicitly assume that, that it's illegitimate to talk about design and you have to, uh, explain life by using only material factors, uh, even though they uh, believe that there is God and that so there's something other than material factors that could have influenced life. Nonetheless, they uh, bought into the assumption that you can't consider that when trying to explain life. Other things are that... If you work, even if you're a theist and you work in a department where it's just assumed that Darwin's theory uh explains life uh and that anybody who doesn't see that well they're you know hey, what's wrong with them you know uh and um uh, so social pressure uh helps to explain a lot too
1: That's a it's um it's a, yeah. a really good Go observation ahead. I had one. I had a a person suggest to me not long ago that, uh, something like if, you know, if you, if you're, if you're a religious person and don't believe in evolution, you must be a member of some sort of cult. Um, Yeah, um, exactly. Let me ask you. you, you, Go go ahead.
2: let, Let me just make here one comment that, uh, you have to realize that, um, there has to be a lot of social pressure because, the points I make in these books are not hard to see. I mean <laughs> they're 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 simple. It's like looking up at Mount Rushmore and scratching your heads and say, guys, you know, I don't think this was due to plate tectonics. And everyone's saying, oh no, 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 that's not but, you know, <laughs> you might want to try to explain why they can't see that. But seeing the design is, is pretty easy. So uh so there has to be Lots of uh, other reasons for them missing that.
1: This, I think, this one thing will be really helpful for our listeners. If if we could if we could get from you, kind of what's the, what's the one main thing you'd want to help people recognize in order to notice the design that's inherent in the natural world. What's what's the kind of the one main thing that people ought to look for as evidence of design
2: well um, if you uh, If you uh, think of it, you know you ask yourself the question, how do we know that another intelligence exists and has acted, even say another human intelligence if you know if you're not just talking straight to them uh, and it turns out that the way, the only way is if you come across what I call a purposeful arrangement of parts. That is where different uh, elements or different things are brought together in order to each other for some uh, a, uh, for some purpose. Uh, that can be something like machinery. You know, a mousetrap is fine. You uh, get a number of pieces. If you saw a mousetrap, nobody would think that it was a natural object. Or writing, of course uh just uh, the chemicals of the ink and the paper uh but they are arranged in a special way when when you're reading a story or having a uh intelligible you know uh, message there so the key is to ask yourselves what do i do i see a purposeful arrangement of things in nature too and if you do then There's no reason to withhold the conclusion uh, that we find everywhere else that, in fact, that arrangement is the product of a mind. And that has been the main point that folks who argue for intelligent design, uh, reaching all the way back to the ancients, the Greeks, and and so on, uh, they said, look how nature is arranged. It's arranged to you know, allow us to thrive, and and so on. And Gail and the physician, a Roman, in in the early uh, uh, 200s, I think it was, uh, said, "Look at the eyeball." He was a uh, uh, he was a, a major uh, scientist and anatomist, and he pointed out lots of features of the eye, and said, "This can only be the uh, work of a, a divine." designer. So that's the key, is uh, to look for purposeful arrangement of parts. And if you do that with open eyes instead of uh, ones that have been kind of uh, intimidated by folks with white coats on, uh, you'll see just tons and tons of such stuff in nature, not only in life, but in all of physical nature.
0: Mike, thanks for taking the time to come on. But even more importantly, thanks for your voice in this conversation. You've always struck me as somebody who's very, very thoughtful and not afraid to say what you believe. But also, you can communicate your books are readable for non-specialists. And my formal training is not in the sciences. It's philosophy and theology. And I've always been able to track along with the arguments that you're making but you've always had a gracious tone about you, even amidst some of the criticism you've received. So thanks for thanks for that. Thanks for your contribution. And I certainly want to encourage that our listeners to check out Darwin Devolves, read some of the responses online, and then your responses to them. And I think they'll walk away realizing there is a powerful case that can be made for intelligent design. So thanks so much for all you do and for coming on.
2: Oh, you bet. Thank you.
0: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Michael Behe, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.